Hello, five listeners. Hello, VD Wong and other listeners. Welcome to Perhaps It's You. Welcome to our Friends and Enemies. It's an unofficial Unsolved Mysteries rewatch podcast. We're back. My name is Liz. I'm Samantha. We're back here to... Look, we're not going to solve any mysteries today. Probably not. I'm so sorry. Also, this episode kind of sucked. So I'm sorry that you waited an extra week for a crappy episode. To end up the season. That disappointed. Yeah, that's kind of sums up this whole episode, really. This is season four, and it's is this episode twenty five. Yeah, yeah. So the the last one twenty five episodes in the season. I kind of could have just not bothered. It was a big bummer, actually. Um, there's a lost love though. We'll get to that. Maybe that's gonna turn things around. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. We had a a couple notes. Uh, one was that one of our voices is kind of pitchy sometimes. We're not sure who that's referring to. I'm not sure exactly what that means. Maybe I'm just vain. I assume that's me singing off key. Isn't, yeah, isn't pitchy something you say when someone's singing? I, is it possible to have a pitchy voice just talking? I don't know. But sometimes they do make up little songs. <laughs> it's not clear to and... me what that even means. As someone who doesn't sing, I never have. I'm deaf, so. Look, the thing is, I only vow to do it more. Okay. Whatever it is, we're going to do it more. Yeah. What? Yeah, I'm not even sure what that complaint was, but I'm here to do it more. The other one was that we bump our mics a lot, which... Is something we're aware of. Yeah, and, we do. Uh, if you think you are hearing us bump our mics a lot <laughs> after I've edited it, you should hear it before I have cut out all of the times we not... Like, you have no idea how often we bump <laughs> shit on this table. Not even the, just the mic stands. Yeah, that's our, the- our LaCroix cans, the paper <laughs> shuffling, I'll just knock into the table. I always sit cross-legged. It's a thing I do in chairs, but then my feet fall asleep halfway through and I have to adjust and then I whack my leg against the table. Like... I try and cut as much of that out as I can when I edit, but sometimes we're talking while it happens, and to cut that out would mean it cuts out, like, an important part of the dialogue. You won't know who's missing. Yeah, so... You won't know who Robert Stack is. I don't know what to tell you. This is this is not a recording studio. <laughs> we this are is a dining room. A dining room. This is also a metal table. Yeah. So any little nudge makes the biggest most ridiculous noise and the the mic stands will reverberate because they have little springs on them so not only are they metal attached to a metal table but they have springs (laughs) i've tried i've tried a new position for the mic stands we'll see if that helps look i just get excited and i wave my hands around and and things get knocked we talk with our hands that doesn't help and i don't know if you thought this was npr you were real wrong yeah (laughs) You were so, so wrong. That's like a whole channel. I have to believe no one is tuning into this thinking that they're going to oh, get NPR, NPR level quality. I uh, bet this was really well researched. This is a very indie podcast. You give me some of that government money and we'll we'll do that. But oh, yeah. Oh, until yeah. then, we have jobs and lives. Uh, Patreon.com slash perhaps it's you. Send some money <laughs> our way and we'll improve the quality. Who wants to underwrite this podcast? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't think that we had any other notes, any other updates. Nah. I just wanted to, to respond to those minor quibbles. I guess and also sing off key. <laughs> do, 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 do. We should maybe mention, you don't have much time when you're hearing this, because we're going to be recording our finale this weekend, so you probably have like a day or two to get us a paranormal story <sighs> oh, if so you true. haven't done it already. We need your ghost stories. I don't care if you don't think it's scary, we want to hear it. Um, we're going to read your stories on our finale episode. We've invited friend of the pod, Kara. Uh, to join us, and it's going to be a good time. But if you have a story you haven't sent in, 
Send it now. Perhaps it's you. Podcast. Pause this podcast right now. Send it to us. Or there's a thing on our website, perhaps it's you.com. Yeah, there's a form. Fill Send it out. in. It'll get to us. Did you see the Loch Ness Monster? Please tell us. Did you see Ogo Pogo? Even better than the last night monster. Yeah, please send us. Do you those have stories. an uncle who really firmly believes Bigfoot is a ghost to the point that he like ruined Thanksgiving dinner? Yeah, send that in. Yeah, that counts. Yeah, it, it doesn't have to be that you saw a ghost. Just some sort of paranormal experience that you've had in your life, or yeah. maybe someone you know has had. Yeah, like a good juicy tale. Yeah, we want to hear it. Yeah, friend of the uh, pod, Gretchen, who was on the show once texted me today and was just like what is your thoughts on crop circles and i had to be like oh they they were pranks people confessed and she was clearly disappointed you didn't tell her that it was uh hedgehogs i i did say that that was a theory but uh thousands of hedgehogs marching in a circle <laughs> that it seemed disproven by the confessions yeah but then when she was clearly disappointed i said yeah well okay sure maybe crop circles aren't real but big Field is a ghost so you always have that to fall back on. There's always a silver lining. In a world where Bigfoot has a ghost, anything's possible. That's the I lesson. I want that on a t-shirt. That's the lesson. Okay. I think we can talk about this episode now, even though I don't really want to. We probably should. Oh, also, everyone, I broke the snack drawer, and I'm really sad about it, and the only thing that's going to make me feel better is more snacks. <laughs> I'm looking at the broken snack drawer right now. It's quite sad. It's uh, in okay. Any leads on getting it repaired? So we have this beautiful wooden dresser in this room that we use like a buffet. It only belonged to Mac's dead grandmother, no biggie. Not important. We keep some of our podcasting stuff in there. And I had taken over one of the drawers for the snacks that you guys send. And it's not just so that Mac wouldn't know where they were and wouldn't eat them. Definitely not. Definitely not. I had who, to, who says that? That's not true. I had to keep them away from the dogs. Uh, there's some reason why I didn't have them in the kitchen. Well, anyway, you guys have sent so many snacks. The other day, the snack drawer got stuck. And then I pulled too hard, and the drawer came out and fell on the ground. Listen, Liz doesn't know her own strength. <laughs> and uh, then the, like, you know, beautiful mid-century carved handle thing cracked. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't notice until the next day when I went, oh, I think I'll have a Kit Kat. And I pulled on that thing, and I was like, oh, this is really broken. Mm-hmm. It's but I did find quite a, sad. So a couple of people that might be able to fix it. Well, good. But um, in the meantime, in conclusion, we don't have any cheesies. And we're going to eat all these Kit Kats. And we need more snacks. Thanks. <laughs> It's the only thing that will make it worthwhile. <laughs> yeah, please. I feel uh, so bad about breaking it. You have no idea. Okay. Well, I mean, send us snacks and maybe it'll make it better. Uh, There's only one way to find out. It's you sending the snacks <laughs> and us seeing if it helps. Um. Okay. I, guess I was I really just talk about stalling because I don't want to talk about this. So okay. The, the, here's, here's, here's me complaining about the thing I'm supposed to like. <laughs> the first mystery... In this, that's Samantha's mystery. Uh, we already did this. We covered this one before. It's not, it's sort of an update, but there's a, like, a bit more, except the bit more is boring. 
Um, mostly it's really boring. And mostly I just texted Samantha while watching it. I'm not even paying attention. This was really boring. We already talked about this. Boring. So if you recall, we covered an unexplained death. It was the case of Charles Morgan. Charles Morgan was the man who he ran an escrow business in some somewhere. I don't remember where. And he went missing. And then he showed up one night in the middle of the night. He wouldn't talk. He told his <laughs> wife yeah. eventually that he had been like kidnapped and that the kidnappers painted a substance on his throat that if he swallowed he would instantly die and then his wife had to feed him with an eyedropper this is that story so i actually told mac all of this the other day yes i just didn't want a vacuum the actual mystery uh that one that we covered was quite interesting because then he got kidnapped again and then subsequently died and i think the police ruled it a suicide and people were like uh that's kind of weird and he maybe (laughs) was like a gonna be a witness for some trial he was also wearing a bulletproof vest yeah and he was shot in the back of the head so there's a lot of weird things about his case and that's that mystery is this mystery again except there's like a little bit more it's like but a little bit more is like not as interesting i mean someone Two people died, so it's very sad. But I don't... Sad is not interesting. No, it's not. (laughs) And, yeah. Also, this mystery is... So the title of this is a uh, The Investigators. Yeah. Because we're following this guy named John Devereaux. Uh, I think the only other time we've had an Investigators one was about a serial killer. Yeah, I think we've had it at least once or twice where they've, like, profiled the FBI, you know? Yeah. And then they're, like, searching for a serial killer. So, that's this, but I think John Devereaux is, like, a, a journalist? I don't know. And also, two two people died. So, this is really sort of an unexplained death. I don't it's know. really just an update. It's weird. It's really just, Robert Stack, calm down. It's, it's sort of really weird. just an update. <laughs> Get over yourself. Okay. Are you ever watching Untold Mysteries and you say to Robert Stack, get over yourself? <laughs> probably, we do probably. get a lot of casual stack in this first mystery. I so that's that. what you're he's into. He's in the forest for some reason. I don't know why, but he's, yeah, he's got the <laughs> casual stack. He needed change of scenery. Yeah. Yeah. So here we go. At 11 p.m. on May 14th, 1990, 35-year-old Doug Johnson left for his night shift at a computer graphics company. An hour later, he was found shot to dead. Dot. An hour later, he was found shot to death in his car. Wait, he wasn't found shot to death? <laughs> I'm gonna edit that out. Oh. Just like every time we whack our mics. I'm sorry. I'm gonna it's, edit that out. It's, it's, it's almost all me whacking a mic. And I know, I just get excited. <laughs> I'm excitable. We love, we're so excited about Unsolved Mysteries. I'm a passionate person. I'm an Aries. <laughs> Okay. I've noticed that you've had your hands in your lap this whole time. I'm trying. (laughs) I'm trying, folks. Okay, so he was shot to death in his car uh, in the company parking lot. He had been shot behind his left ear from a distance of at least 12 inches. At first, authorities... suicide. ...believe that Doug's death was a suicide. However, he was right-handed, and there was no gunpowder <laughs> residue on his hands. It was clearly not a su- They thought it was a suicide, despite all evidence to the contrary. Yeah, because also, interestingly, there was no gun found at the scene. <laughs> well, okay. Not sure how you kill yourself without a... To be fair, eagles are very strong. <laughs> so, what if... Was it an owl that w- flew away with the gun? <laughs> he put on the bulletproof vest... He got in his car. He used his, you know, less, non-dominant, non-dominant hand to shoot himself behind the ear. Dies. Gun falls out window. Eagle <laughs> flying above sees it. Thinks it's food. 
grabs is an eagle with like not very good eyesight grabs it <laughs> flies away takes the gun to its nest the most american thing that ever happened a eagle flying holding a gun <laughs> what about that i mean that's a theory that, that's, that a, makes that's a theory as much sense as the elf theory everyone <laughs> if you're like oh the staircase murder wasn't that dude that it clearly was it was an owl <laughs> yeah okay then i don't think this was a this murder i think this was an eagle explain the microscopic owl feather that was found at the scene liz i'm sure there's an owl feather in my hair right now <laughs> there's just stuff around people not all of it's evidence <laughs> Okay, so uh, this guy clearly didn't kill himself, but the authorities believe that he did. For unknown reasons, authorities have not determined that his death was either a suicide or a homicide. So they sort of were like, well, maybe it's not a suicide, but whatever. His family and friends are convinced that his death was a homicide. They do not believe he would have committed suicide because he had just finished school and had gotten a new job. Okay, fine. That Okay. He also- I feel like sometimes getting a new job would be the reason to commit suicide, but maybe he was a more optimistic person than myself. For whatever reason, his family did not believe that I he- wouldn't believe it was him because he was wearing a bulletproof vest. So this guy actually wasn't. Oh, This is oh, a different oh. guy. We're, we're actually not going to talk about much about the uh, Charles Morgan because we already covered that. This is a, I see. I'm this sorry. is a different guy. And I've confused my dead men. Okay, the timeline of this is very strange. Let me just get- Okay, let me just give you a breakdown of how this goes. This guy, John Devereaux, was investigating the Charles Morgan case because authorities ruled Charles Morgan's uh, clearly murder a suicide. And so this guy, John Devereaux, was investigating it. And he believes that he pissed off the wrong people looking into this and that someone wanted him dead. This guy, Doug Johnson, looks a lot like John Devereaux and also, like, lives near him or something, or his work is near. they drive the same car. They drive the same car. They look very similar. And then, I think where he worked is, like, across from his house. They're in proximity. So this guy was found dead in his car. We're gonna get to it, but John Devereaux, who we're interviewing as the investigator for this mystery believes that it was a mistake and that it was actually a hit that was meant for him so and then an eagle picked up the gun yeah of course um got it <laughs> so yeah so Doug, Doug johnson had a similar house and drove a similar car as john devereaux devereaux lived across the street from the parking lot where doug was killed devereaux was a journalist whose work was allegedly a threat to mob figures in phoenix devereaux was also investigating the suspicious death of charles morgan Charles, who worked for an escrow company, had first vanished on March 1977 and later returned to his home claiming that he had been abducted and drugged. Um, He told his wife that he had worked for the federal government and that his abductors had taken his identification. Then in June 1977, he vanished again and was found shot to death 11 days later. Ironically, he was wearing a bulletproof vest. Shortly after Charles was found dead, two men claiming to be government officials went to the Morgan home and ransacked the house looking for something unknown. Hmm. Hmm. So the Charles case was aired on Unsolved Mysteries, and after the broadcast, Devereaux followed up on several leads. He learned that Charles Morgan was involved in money laundering related to his escrow company. He was also involved in gold and platinum transactions. Transactions. Most of the gold came out of Southeast Asia at the end of Viet- the Vietnam War. Devereaux believes <laughs> legit. that Charles was killed because he knew too much and that he needed to be silenced. I will never have that problem. <laughs> You're killed because you knew too no, much? No, never. Yeah. I'm so safe. I think I'm probably safe as well. <laughs> Uh, Devereaux discovered that Charles kept duplicate records of the illegal transactions and that he was probably killed because he was keeping these records. 
1991, Devereaux was contacted by a writer from Washington, D.C. named Danny Casalaro. Devereaux agreed to share with Dan the information that he had uncovered about the char- about Charles's money laundering and gold transactions. However, before Devereaux could even mail his research, Dan Castellaro was found dead. He was found with his wrist slashed in a hotel bathroom. His mm. death was ruled a suicide. So I printed out the unsolved an owl, wiki. Owl aside. For an, <laughs> an owl slashed his wrist. Yeah. That's why you think an owl might be involved. Actually, have you seen those videos where like you see an owl's legs? There was one that was viral on Twitter that I saw just yesterday where an owl was running. running. Yeah. The cutest thing I've ever seen. It's weird that their legs are so long. I didn't know that. It's quite weird. Have you also seen, there was a viral, a picture that was going viral that was a penguin skeleton. And a penguin is like all neck. Oh, yeah. Very weirdly. The animal kingdom is wild. It makes you think that maybe some dinosaurs are more like penguin shaped than we could have. Wouldn't that be the cutest dinosaur ever if it was just a little penguin-shaped dinosaur? Yeah, because we think they had these really long necks, but what if they were just all fluffy like a penguin? <laughs> oh my, What if it was just fluffy like what a penguin? If? If, if you're a paleontologist, get in touch. <laughs> I'm sure lots of paleontologists <laughs> listen to the show. Please, join us on Patreon. Okay, I printed out the Unsolved Wiki for Danny Castellaro's murder, um, because Unsolved Mysteries goes into it a little, and also because this one we haven't already covered in the show. So, at 12.30 p.m. on August 10th, 1991, 44-year-old investigative reporter Danny Castellaro was found dead in his hotel room near Martinsburg, West Virginia. A housekeeper had found him in his bathtub. Both of his wrists were slashed. Police were called to investigate. They soon found an apparent suicide note. It read, to my loved ones, please forgive me, most especially my son, and be understanding. God will let me in. Hmm. In the bathtub. It's kind of a generic suicide note. A little bit. A little bit. To in- my loved ones, no names. Yeah. yeah I, I promise if I write a suicide note, it's going to be hella specific. <laughs> so you'll know Is it going to talk sure. about all your enemies? Yes. Okay. That's how you'll know it's legit. <laughs> It'll like list them out. <laughs> Here are the people to blame. Here's who's not invited to my funeral. Number one (laughs) through 99. So in the bathtub, they found a razor blade. It was determined that Danny's wrist had been slashed a total of 12 times. There were eight cuts on his left and four on his right. Hmm. One cut was deep enough to sever a tendon. Investigators found his, his wallet with credit cards and money still in the room. There appeared to be no signs of forced entry or a struggle. As a result, they ruled his death a suicide. For unknown reasons, his family was not notified of his death for two days. They're convinced that he was murdered. That like, is weird. Yeah. Maybe it was just incompetence, though? I mean, I don't know if that necessarily means that something nefarious was no, going on. So often the answer is just incompetence. Yeah. I mean, if only the world likely. was more mysterious. Instead, people are like, what? Uh, it's I'm, just like... I'm hungover. I'm going to go home. Yeah. Or the, the police department, like, someone thought Frank was doing it. Someone else yeah. thought Joe was doing it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and then two days go by and they're like, wait, you didn't call the family either? Yeah. Because I totally didn't call the family because I've just been sleeping in my car for the past few days. <laughs> and it's like, well, you're fired. But also, someone needs to go notify the family. Yeah. And now they think something nefarious is going on. Um, Danny's brother contacted the police and asked um, about Danny's papers, his investigation, and um, 
and any other evidence. The officer did not know any of it. The papers that uh, Danny had with him included hundreds of notes and documents documents from his year-long investigation, but they have since never been found. Danny's family also noted that he was afraid of blood tests and needles. They felt that it was unlikely that he would have committed suicide by slashing his wrist. So deeply would cut a tendon. Yeah, that seems sort of... That about anything, you know, with this seems a little strange. That is... That seems like evidence to me. Just days before his death, he told several friends that he was close to breaking the story that he was investigating. It started as an inquiry into a computer software theft. However, it soon turned into an investigation of government corruption and allegedly implicated U.S. Justice Department officials. Some believe that he was killed because he knew too much. His investigation began in August 1990 when he interviewed Bill and Nancy Hamilton, the owners of a computer software company called Inslaw. That's a terrible name. Yeah. It sounds like an app for coleslaw. It sort of does. It's like all coleslaw recipes. It's like, don't worry, there's an app for that. And you're like, I don't think we needed a specific app. <laughs> Just for coleslaw recipes. Oh, okay. Let's not... What is that? What are you doing? Okay, everyone, I just had to close the curtains because Lenny was trying to bark at this beagle next door. And he's so mad at me that he is determined to sit there and stare out the window. <laughs> even though the curtain is drawn. Even though the curtain is drawn and he can't see anything. Because <laughs> he's just a little freak. Okay, so this is not an app for coleslaw. <laughs> this is... <laughs> oh, now you tell me. After I invested so much money. Uh, they developed a program called Promise that allegedly revolutionized information management for law enforcement agencies. Okay. Oh, sounds like some weird shit. In 1980, the U.S. Justice Department purchased the program to handle their millions of cases. Initially, it worked well with the department. However, during the second year of the three-year contract, the Justice Department began to withhold payments from the company. This eventually <laughs> okay. led to Inslaw filing for bankruptcy. Bill and Nancy discovered that the Canadian government had acquired Promise, despite the fact that they did not sell it to Canada. Weird. Yeah, it's kind of strange. Bill and Nancy spoke to Michael... Rickenscudo, okay, mm-hmm. who claimed to have worked with the CIA on numerous top secret projects. He claimed that people involved in covert operations in South America and the Middle East had distributed promise. He also claimed that the money received from selling it was used to cover covert operations. I don't know why the government would need to sell this program in order They're to like bootleg pay software. for shit, but. It's and then telling us not to pirate? What hypocrites. In August 1989, the Inslaw scandal became known to Congress and the House Judiciary Committee. Um, it, they opened a formal inquest. This Rickon's... I have no idea how to pronounce this guy's name, testified about his knowledge regarding the case. Within a week of submitting his sworn affidavit to the committee, he was arrested on drug charges by agents of the Justice Department. Formerly, Attorney General Elliot Richardson also testified before the committee. After months of investigation, Danny believed that he had uncovered an unsavory network of U.S. officials, organized crime members, and intelligence agents. He called the network the octopus. That doesn't sound evil at all. (laughs) He claimed that it was behind several scandals in the 1980s, including the Iran-Contra scandal, the BCCI scandal, the BNL affair, and the now-discredited October surprise. 
Wow. He was apparently in contact with several shadowy figures. A week before his death, Danny told Tony that he had been receiving frequent death threats. He also said that if he did die, that Tony should not believe that it was an accident. On August 8, 1991, he arrived in Martinsburg with several briefcases, planning to meet with informants and conclude his investigation. He claimed to have been tracking the finances of, quote, the octopus, and believed that <laughs> one of his new contacts would deliver new evidence. I now wish we had called our podcast The Octopus. <laughs> For no reason. I don't think anyone would know. I don't know that a lot of people know what perhaps it's you means, but The Octopus... It just it Makes just sounds mysterious sense. and evil. What was that horror movie? The Sharktopus? Oh yeah, there's, you a were shark, there's a Sharktopus movie. A Sharktopus? Half shark, half octopus. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes total sense. What if this co- podcast was called The Sharktopus? <laughs> well, I think we would have to limit ourselves to shark or octopus related movies. <laughs> we could talk about the movie Hammerhead, which is a half shark, half human yeah, there's sharks in Venice. I mean, there's a lot of those sci-fi movie bad shark movies. Yeah. There's plenty of content there. Okay, the day before his death, Danny met with another source, William Turner, who was a former employee of a major defense contractor. According to him, he handed over paperwork describing corruption that Danny believed was tied to the octopus. The next day, Danny was dead and William's documents were missing, along with the rest of Danny's papers. Due to the controversy surrounding Danny's death, the West Virginia authorities convened a formal inquest, which included a complete autopsy. All right, Danny's family learned that his hotel room was cleaned by a professional cleaning crew the day after his death. They inadvertently discarded important evidence. Interestingly, one of them remembered seeing two bloody towels in the bathroom. It appeared that someone had tried to clean the blood off the floor prior to when the professional cleaning crew arrived. One strange footnote to this case occurred at Danny's funeral. During during the burial, a highly decorated military official appeared and placed a medal on his casket. Nobody knows who he was or what connection he may have had to the case. Okay. Danny's family and many others are convinced that his investigation into Inslaw and the Justice Department led to his death. Um, it remains unsolved to this day. So what I found interesting about all of that was that that has very little to do with the Charles Morgan case. So I don't understand, other than the fact that, I mean, it might just be a complete coincidence that he contacted John Devereaux about the Doug Johnson thing. Yeah. Because it seems like he was involved in some bigger shit that may or may not have led to his death. You mean so, the octopus? Yes, the octopus and Inslaw, uh, the cool thought app. <laughs> okay, six month, months after Dan's death, Devereaux learned from another journalist that there was a hit placed on him, but that Doug Johnson was mistakenly killed as a result. Devereaux also learned that there was apparently other people that wanted him dead. A CIA official and an inform- informant for Israeli intelligence confirmed the death threats to Devereaux. Devereaux is now certain that Doug was mistakenly killed as a result of a botched hit that was meant for him. Doug's murder, along with the deaths of Charles Morgan and Dan Castellaro, remain unsolved. So... I feel like I don't know if anyone who's listening found that interesting, uh, <laughs> but that's that's what the mystery, the first mystery was. I don't know. It's weird, and I don't know that any of these cases are actually connected because they're all unsolved. So okay, I don't know. I feel like we need it a what movie starring George Clooney about this. Yeah, maybe because I just have a little trouble following it. Well, there's a lot of different pieces, and they may or may not. Be connected. It may just be that 
it, it, all of this could be a coincidence. I don't know. Maybe there was a hit on this guy and Doug Johnson was killed by mistake. Maybe Doug Johnson was in random act of violence. Maybe an eagle took the gun away and it was really a suicide. I don't. <laughs> no one knows because they're all unsolved and there's not that much information and they there. Didn't, they didn't and even look for an eagle. Frankly, this first mystery is boring. And yeah, they didn't even look for the eagle. So, I mean, this is incompetent police work. Again. Again. Once again. Wow. What was that eagle's alibi? What were the squirrels in the area doing? <laughs> There's a lot of unanswered questions here, and... Yeah. Well, no, there there actually are. Some of them are about eagles. <laughs> and squirrels. And then some of them are about the CIA and coleslaw apps, but... My dogs are making me lose my mind. Okay. Now we have a car heist. Were you waiting for an armored car heist? Because we got one. Yeah, I sure was. Um... There's not a lot to this mystery, but it's kind of fun, I guess. Sort of. A little. No one dies. No one dies. So that's all I can really ask for in a robbery. Um, This goes back to June 26, 1990, in Rochester, New York. So this was the Armored Motor Services of America was driving an armored car that contained $11 million. And I guess they would regularly stop... (laughs) at a convenience store and get rid of their dogs. (laughs) No. As part of their route, this car would regularly stop at a convenience store. So one of the guards who Unsolved Mysteries is calling Mary Wilson, but that's not her name, so again, I don't know why they bother giving her a last name. But Mary goes inside the store to get cigarettes or I don't know, whatever. And then the driver, Albert, is waiting in the truck. So while Mary Oh, okay. Once on Mysteries Wiki tells me she was dying donuts and coffee. I'm sorry to besmirch your character, <laughs> fictional Mary, by saying you smoked. So um at that point, three armed men exit the van part next to them and surround the armored truck. In the reenactment, one of them was wearing a weird old man mask. Don't know if that was accurate. I don't know if it was accurate. It was quite creepy. One of them had a shotgun, and in the reenactment, the guy with the old man mask had a key to the side door of the truck. So, he uses the key, gets inside the truck, and is able to uh, keep a gun on the driver. They, for some reason, waited for the other guard to get back, I guess, so she couldn't, like, call the police. I assume so. So, they wait for her to get back. Then when she's in the car, she's like doesn't realize there's a problem until she's in the car and there's a gun on her. So then they force the armored car to drive to this remote area that had been like pre-prepared. They had like snipped some trees so they could get in there. And it was in this secluded area. And there was another guy waiting for them there. So they tie up the two guards. And then the four of them... Is there four or three? I thought there was three... There's, I thought there was two, and then there's one guy there, but then Unsolved Mysteries Wiki is saying that there was three men originally robbing the van, so I'm not really sure. Anyway. I remember what you remember, that there was two at the convenience store and one in the woods, but maybe I'm totally misremembering. <sighs> That's what I thought as well. So let's say then the three of them unload the armored car into their truck. And I wrote down that this $11 million weighs uh, 2,000 pounds. That's extremely heavy. Yeah. So, you know, it takes a while to move it from one car to the other, even with the three of them. And in doing so, they, like, left a scattering of small bills in the armored car that added up to (laughs) $13,000. That was just what they, like, couldn't manage to take. Wow. And it was just scattered around inside. I'll take it. 
So at the time, this was the largest on-road robbery of an armored car in U.S. history. They thought that it was an inside job because of the use of the key. Also, this was like the dumpiest <laughs> armored car I've ever seen. Yeah. And there was like a little porthole in the passenger side, like front area. I don't know. It's, it, was, it wasn't like on the door, but it was like sort of near the passenger side door that like they could conveniently just stick their shotgun through and i guess the police thought that was left unrepaired on purpose maybe oh i'm not sure why an armored car even needs like little portholes but also i don't think that the car regularly had that much money so it was considered inside information that on that day they would have 11 million dollars it was also untraceable for some reason yeah they weren't um sequential bills so so there was no way to like trace where that money went so that's I guess another reason they thought it was an inside job yeah so the 11 million dollars in cash was loaded into a blue van this is now coming from Unsolved Mysteries Wiki. After they loaded the money in the van, the three men left the scene. After 15 minutes, Mary was able to rip through the plastic handcuffs. She drove the armored car to company headquarters and reported the robbery. Curtis is, like, demanding that I pet him right now. Okay. So she drove to company headquarters and reported the robbery. The next day, a blue van was found abandoned miles away. Um, yeah, that's when $13,000 in small bills had been left behind. The rest of the money was missing. Police suspected the heist may have been an inside job. And then they talk about that thing Samantha just told you about. There's also the keys. Also, the gunmen were wearing clothes that were nearly identical to the uniforms worn by employees. Which, wouldn't you change the different clothes? I wonder if they were supposed to, like, kind of blend in if someone spotted them, like, getting into oh, the truck or whatever. Oh, that's a good theory. Except that one of them is wearing a plastic old man mask <laughs> and holding a gigantic shotgun. <laughs> well, I mean... That's... But I guess if they just, like, saw them driving the car, it wouldn't look that out of place. Sure, that makes sense. Hi, Curtis. Um, so, yeah, and only a limited amount of people knew that the armored truck was carrying a large amount of untraceable cash. So, um, it's sort of solved, sort of not. Uh... For years, the driver, Albert Ranini, and his father were considered prime suspects in the robbery. I'm not sure why his father was. Maybe he had worked for that company. I don't have any more information on that. But they were pretty clear it was an an inside job. In 1995, the statute of limitations ran out in the case. In December 2002, Albert confessed to the robbery and the unrelated year 2000 murder of Anthony Vaccaro. Oh. He received a 30-year sentence for the murder and other charges. He will not be eligible for release until 2027. However, he never named his accomplices. So we don't know who the other two men he worked for were. Only $87,000 of the $11 million was ever recovered. Albert claimed that he spent more than half a million dollars on, quote, drugs and investments. Okay. (laughs) Which is... I don't know. I wouldn't not usually put those two things together. <laughs> it's like, oh, what's in your retirement fund? Oh, I have this much in drugs and investments. Maybe the drugs were an investment. I mean, maybe. Who knows? So these other two men, uh, we don't know who they are. And since Albert was the person on the inside, they probably aren't connected to the armored car company. They're probably just people he right. knew or or agreed to work with on this robbery and they got away with it and at this point the statute of limitations has run out they're enjoying their millions of dollars yeah i guess yeah i I, it's nice to have a robbery where everyone lives so thank you for that and i am curious what they did with the money but it seems to be drugs and investments investments. we got that answer all right 
The end. That's it. All right, there's a lost love next. Uh, and it of is, course you get it, because it's perfect for you. It is kind of nice to close out the season with a lost love. However, so it's not a happy lost it's love. It's not ha- a happy lost love, so it's not my favorite lost love of all time. But I wrote worst update down, so. Yeah, it's, it, mm. spoiler alert, there's not a huge happy ending on this one. Okay, so Martha Brown is searching for her twin brother, Robert, after they were given up for adoption by their impoverished parents, Ira and Dora Brown. The Browns had relocated to California after their farm was destroyed in Oklahoma during the Dust Bowl. By wow. N- yeah. By 1951, they had four children, and Dora was pregnant again. On July 27th, 1951, Dora gave birth to twins, Martha and Robert. Due to financial difficulties and Martha's heart problems, the Browns were forced to give the twins up for adoption. Martha and Bobby were placed in California's foster care system. They were taken from home to home for several years. Mm-hmm. I know, this is really sad. This is going to make you feel really bad for these kids. Finally, in 1956, Martha and Bobby Brown um, came to live with Alice and Arnold Brightelier. Why can't I pronounce names? Brightelary? Brightelary? Sure. Brightelary. I'm sorry. Of really California. Alice remembered that the twins had large amounts of dirt on them. She said it took over two hours for her to get them clean. She, she also remembered that they were always hungry, as they had not received much food in their other foster homes. Martha told Alice how she and Bobby were mistreated by the other foster families. They would sneak into the kitchen at night to take food in fear of being malnourished again. They were, like, hoarding food. It was so sad. Yeah, they would sneak and, like, steal crackers in the middle of the night and eat them in their bedroom. Because um, they said that they would have to stand in, like, the corner or, like, on the side while the family would eat dinner. And then all they would get was beans at their last foster family. It was really sad. Yeah. And the reenactment of them going to steal the crackers together was super cute. It was they so had to, cute. Like, they pushed a chair up under the counter. Or, like, a flashlight with them as they're eating the crackers. The kids in this reenactment were adorable. Yeah, they are super cute. So years of neglect had neglect had taken a severe toll on the twins. Alice noticed that they were suffering from behavioral problems. One day while the kids were playing in a small pool. I mean, of, of course, they never had a chance. She saw Bobby hold Martha under the water and not let her come up for air. She had to run out um, and basically save Martha. Um, she soon realized that Bobby needed help. Alice contacted child services. And in 1957, Bobby and Martha were separated and Bobby was sent to another foster home. Really so this sad. is sad because... Because you can tell that Alice was just trying to do the, to do the best she could, but she was in over her head with the behavior problems that Bobby yeah. was. He had you know violent outbursts, which is I mean it sounds like they were they both suffered from who knows what at their previous foster homes. Yeah, she reached out for really, help yeah. to the um to the family services, and basically they responded by separating the children. Which is only going to cause more trauma to both of them. I don't know how that's a solution. Yeah. And it's not the solution that she was looking for. No. She was just looking for support. Right. To, like, how to best take care of him, and they just take him away. And Alice is interviewed for the show, and you can tell she feels a lot of guilt, but it wasn't her her fault. It's not her decision. And, yeah. I mean, of course he had behavioral issues. It's such a nightmare. I know. On the last day they saw each other, Bobby gave Martha his favorite Halloween costume. Which... Sadly, was a clown costume. 
Sadly, it was. Very sadly. When the twins were 11, Bobby and his foster family moved out of the area. Martha and the Breitlers never heard from him again. In 1962, Martha was legally adopted by the Breitlers. After Arnold Breitler passed away... They seemed so nice, too. They really were. Martha and Alice moved to Ashland, Oregon. When she was 18, Martha went to the welfare office in Fresno, California. She learned that Bobby had been adopted. She eventually obtained his address. Martha wrote a letter to him asking if he would come to her graduation. But sadly, a few weeks later, the letter letter was returned unopened. In 1989, Martha obtained copies of Bobby's birth certificate and driver's license. She found that he had an address in Los Angeles, but she was surprised to learn that the address was actually a homeless shelter. Records from the Midnight Mission showed that Bobby had not been there since 1987. So that was apparently his last known address, um, but it didn't offer them any way to find him. Martha was still hoping to find her twin brother Bobby along with her other siblings that she never got a chance to meet. So the result is that it's sort of solved. Within minutes of the broadcast, Martha was put in contact with her oldest brother, Jack. She was saddened to learn that her other brother and sister, the ones that were not adopted, were deceased. Sadly, Martha passed away on October 9, 1995. She was only 44 years old. It is not known if she ever reunited with Bobby before she passed. However, his name was listed among her survivors in her obituary. I hate it. So, yeah, records indicate that Bobby, who later went by the name of Robert Harold Macy, passed away just a year later in 1996 in Tucson, Arizona. Oh my goodness. So, that one's really heartbreaking. <laughs> I, I love a lost love, but there's hardly anything good about this. I guess she was reunited with her older brother, but... <sighs> I don't know why she died at 44. Her twin died the year later. Everything is sad. I, I don't hate that. I don't know. This sucks. Uh, <laughs> I wish we could help people better. I know. Okay. Yeah. We've got one more mystery. That is... It is cringe. Problematic. It is. So, this is actually a mysterious case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, this is a, a classic whodunit. You know, something that could be in an Agatha Christie book. However, Unsolved Mysteries doesn't frame it as, who snuck into this room and murdered this kid while he was sleeping? Yeah, Curtis is outraged because Unsolved Mysteries is like, Orthodox Judaism, what's up with that? I don't want to give him too much credit. I think they were trying to sort of be respectful. That's probably more credit than they deserve. But it comes off as very much like, and what's so weird about this is Judaism. Yeah. It's, it's I don't know. It's pretty tone deaf. It's not uh it's, Samantha <laughs> just looks puzzled and concerned. I mean, it's it is a thing you watch and you're like, Well that was a choice. I don't Okay. Let's hear from let's hear from the man Robert Stack himself. First of all, he starts off talking about how the US is a melting pot. Okay. Rarely a good sign. Then he says, however, woven into the colorful fabric of America, American society, a few subcultures are so self-contained and tradition-bound that they are shrouded in mystery (laughs) from those in the mainstream and are all too often misunderstood. What a mysterious subculture. It's Jews. Like, what? It has the... 
a very like sideshow kind of vibe. Yes, it's, it's like not we helpful. know how to mix up these cases. This one's about Jews. <laughs> it's and not you go, oh, at all? Wow. All right. Um. So anyway, unsolved mysteries is in no place to teach us about Orthodox <laughs> Judaism, but I would like to let us know that there are people that live according to us to strict rules and regarding social and moral conduct that have been unchanged for centuries. Okay. Yeah. Thanks on self mysteries. Uh-huh. And then this includes hours of daily prayer and a rigid dietary regimen. It also uses the phrase ancient rituals and uncommon environment. So that's all terrible. But that's not really what this is about. No, it's about a murder. It's about a dead child. (laughs) So there's also that to bring you down. This is about the murder of a student at a yeshiva in Long Beach. 15-year-old Chaim Weiss. Um, So this is honestly mysterious. And I wish they had just focused on how mysterious this is. This kid is murdered in his dormitory at the yeshiva as he's sleeping in the night. Someone sneaks in, murders him, moves his body twice, according to custom, and sneaks out? It's wild. It's wild. And this is just a nice kid this is at school. A 15-year-old who's studying. Who wanted him dead? It's who has... Who, think of yourself at 15. How many enemies did you really have? (laughs) Not girls that said bitchy things about you. That doesn't count. People that honestly would sneak into your room and murder you. Yeah. No. Right? This kid didn't have drugs and investments. (laughs) He's just a kid. So he was killed with a single blow with a sharp object that severed his spinal column? Wow. There was no murder weapon found at the scene and there was no signs of a struggle. So part of the complication was the investigation started on a Saturday, which is Sabbath, and people were not available to talk. Yes. So as I already said, he was killed in his sleep, and then his body was moved twice. So his he was murdered in bed, his body is then moved to the floor, and then it's moved about two feet to the left. And also, his window is left wide open. And someone explained that this would have been customary to leave a door or window open. That's for the spirit to get out, but also you were supposed to... Look, I don't know any of this. I am basing this on a very dubious episode of Unsolved Mysteries, <laughs> so I apologize now. Take this with a grain of salt. Whoa. But what the show said was you're supposed to move the body to the the lowest, coolest point, which would explain moving it off the bed. And then after you move it off the bed, go, oh, this isn't the coolest point. The coolest point is there. And then moving the body again right. two feet. Right? Okay. Um... Also, a rabbi asked if he could light a memorial candle in the room that would burn for several days. The crime scene after that was unsealed. But a second candle mysteriously appeared, and then no one ever admitted to lighting it. Which they said, like, we asked, you know, the students and other people at the school, and none of them said it was them. And we don't know why they wouldn't say it was them, because that's, like, a nice thing to do. Like, why wouldn't you fess up to that? So it was like, did the murderer leave the second candle? They polygraphed 40 students, teachers, and rabbis, and none of that turned out to be helpful. So this was basically a plea for anyone with any information to come forward, and it ends with the police being sort of frustrated that the kids aren't, like, ratting on each other. (laughs) 
<laughs> they're like, oh, this community is so, like, tight-knit that they don't want to, like, throw each other under the bus. They're like, we need even vague suspicions. No one wants to come forward and have, like, case they have actual evidence. And I was like, how it should work? You're, like, complaining. We're not getting enough juicy gossip. What's with this yeshiva? Maybe no one knows what happened. I mean, yeah. Also, their classmate was just brutally murdered in his sleep, and the place, they're still sleeping. Yeah. I think if they knew anything, they would come forward. They are 15, and they don't want to be murdered in their sleep. But they're not going to just, like, turn on their friends and say, like, I think this kid did it. Why? Oh, because I don't like him. Yeah. And also, I guess it would be helpful if, like, people come come forward with things that they've seen. But also, shouldn't you just be investigating? Like, do your job. Why do you need them to come solve this mystery for you? Aren't you the police? All right. Here's the results from Unsolved Mysteries right. Wiki. Yeah. I, don't, I don't have an answer to that. It's just frustrating. <laughs> okay, this is unsolved. Unsettlingly. Ugh. Investigators looked into a former janitor at the school, along with a mentally ill man who attacked senior citizens at their homes near the yeshiva in 1986. However, both of these men were ruled out. In 2013... His case was reopened by investigators. They interviewed more than 100 former students, but reportedly made little progress in the investigation. In 2015, they announced that they believe a student or faculty member was responsible for the murder. Not helpful. Someone who uh, could have been in the building (laughs) probably did the murder. Thanks! I'm glad you looked into that for two years to come up to that, because they didn't identify any suspects at that time. In November of 2007, his father, Anton, was interviewed by a news station and recalled several bizarre incidents prior to his son's murder. For example, in July of 1986, he called from summer camp. He was crying and saying that he wanted to come home. According to Anton, this was very out of character. That's not unusual for summer camp. Yeah, I can tell you that right now. I totally did that. Half the kids at summer camp call their parents crying to come home. I don't actually think that's a clue to anything. In August, he went... Oh, my God. Do not get dogs. Curtis! You think that they'll help you solve mysteries, but they won't. Come in here and shut up. (laughs) Um, He went to visit his grandparents in Europe. During this time, the yeshiva's principal... Rabbi Cooper called Anton several times, asking when his son would be back home. Okay, that's weird. He felt that this was suspicious. It is. On another occasion, Cooper had Anton bring his son to him to talk alone. After a meeting of about 10 minutes, he returned to his father. However, he was reluctant to talk about the meeting. I don't like where this is going. Anton suspects that Rabbi Cooper has more information about his son's murder. Some have speculated that he may have been involved. A former student has since came forward, claiming he has been physically abused by the rabbi. He claims that... By a rabbi. He claims that Rabbi Cooper did nothing to stop the abuse. The alleged abuse occurred approximately 10 years prior to the murder, though. Despite the allegations, no one has been charged in the case. So it's, it seems like maybe he knew something that he wasn't... People weren't comfortable with him knowing? Yeah, that could be. The call is saying, like, hey, so when is your son going to be around? Uh, that is suspicious. Yeah. I, I don't like the implications here. No. And yeah, it's sad, and it's very scary. And it's a... It's a a legit mystery that I find very fascinating. It's just that the way Unsolved Mysteries handled this, where it's like, you know what the interesting spin on this one is? Jews. Yeah, it's um, 
I'm not sure problematic is a strong enough word. It's it's pretty bad. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And there is a there's a case here, and I wish someone would solve it. And it's a tragedy. I know. But in a the 15 end, fifteen year old was murdered. It's so horrible. In his sleep, in his dorm. Yeah. With no witnesses, no suspects, Ugh. and it's possibly the rabbis covering something up. I don't know. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But that's the end of the episode, everyone. That's the end of it. That's the, the end, end of season four. Season, goodbye, season four. We hardly knew you. Um, it's like, oh, we'll just wrap up season four with a little old-fashioned bigotry, and we're out! <laughs> we're done! Should we rate this episode? I, I think I think that's our job. All right. Uh, mysteriousness. Okay, this last one, mysterious. The this other is very mysterious. The other one's not mysterious at all, so I'm giving it a sideways. I think a sideways was fair. Reenactments? Okay, there were so many mustaches. In your uh, robbery mystery. Oh, that's true. The reenactors had so many mustaches. And there was, like, an investigator guy who had sort of sunken eyes. But his mustache was very interesting. There was a lot of... There was a lot of space between his lip and the stash. Huh. What should we call that one? I don't know. The appendix. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I like like the appendix. It comes after. You know, there's, like, a space. And then it... I like like that explanation. (laughs) I like that explanation. Makes no sense. Okay, yeah. So that's our MVM. The, the mustaches really have very little to do the, with the reenacting, to be honest. But I thought the reenactments were pretty good. I thought the reenactments were pretty good. I thought the um, your lost love reenactments were very moving and heartfelt. And the kids were super cute. Yeah, yeah. So I guess I'll give the reenactments a sure, thumbs up. Thumbs up. Why not? Fashion. Actually, great 60s fashion in your lost love. That's true. That's true. There was some bell sleeves. You've got all sorts of sort of prim 60s, mm-hmm. like almost just going to church type clothes. Not like hippie late 60s fashion. This is like conservative yeah. early 60s. I need to iron and starch everything I own 60s fashion. Yes. And I was here for it. Yeah, I liked it. I thought it was good. We get casual stack. Yeah, so he's all over the place. Robert Stack, fashion. I'll give him. I give him a thumbs up. Sure, why not? All right. How do you rate this episode overall on our Robert Stack I rating mean, scale? Honestly, bad. We've got an update. The first one this- was hard to follow. It was confusing and it was boring. A pretty standard armored car robbery. Not a lot to it. They robbed a car. That's like I just summed up the whole case. A car was robbed. The lost love was so depressing, despite that it was a lost love, which I love. It was really sad. And then the last one is a startling example of how bigotry refuses to die. <laughs> so, what do we give this? I a, think I give it a one. A, a one? Maybe yeah. a one and a half? Yeah. But it's low, because I don't really think you should watch it. This is a forgettable episode. I don't know that it's it's worth watching. I, are you teaching some sort of college course on bigotry? Then maybe pull out that last segment. Yeah, but, that's an uh, idea. Otherwise, I don't know why you would watch this one. No, Mm-mm, pass, pass. Let's. I I have high hopes for season five. Let's just move on. Yeah, let's just let's move on. Leave us behind. Season four is in the you're, past. You're dead to me. Season four. All right. Um. Do we have any thoughts on season four as a whole? You know, we've been doing season four for a while, and honestly, I can't really remember when it began and what we did. I'm having a hard time remembering specifics. Maybe I'll look back on season four for our finale, and I'll think of my favorite mysteries, because right now I can't remember anything. It's all a blur. It is kind of all a blur. I'm hoping somehow we get something about vampires in season five. That would be nice. Is that possible? 
Vampires? I, anything's possible. Are they real? Anything's possible. Uh, that would be great. Does anybody remember that PBS Sherlock Holmes show um, where there's a mystery where a boy is pretending to be a vampire? Interesting. Something like that. Yeah, if we could have a fake <laughs> vampire fraud. Yes, I want a vampiric fraud. That would be great. Possibly. Season that five could deliver that. Takes place at like a goth bondage club. Oh. Or there's like black market blood sales. I want to hear how Robert Stack navigates a, a, <laughs> a vampire bondage club. Oh my god, I do too. Imagine. Yeah. Robert Stack's like, <laughs> I actually just came from the vampire bondage he club. Was like, oh, my side business. I know all about that. Yeah. Where I have my five sums. <laughs> you don't even know about those. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. Yeah, so that's our wish for season five. We'll see if well. it comes true. Join us next week for our finale. Yeah. So we have to round this out with a couple of recommendations. We sure do. I'm going to recommend something that's a book that I haven't finished. Is that okay? I've done it before. All right. I'm currently reading the book You. That's right. Like the Netflix show, which is by Caroline Kep- Kepins. How would you say this name? Kepnes? Kepnes? Anyway, great book. Okay. Highly recommend. Is the show really based on the book? Yes. Okay. Yes. Which is the reason that I wanted to read it. So, uh, season two of You recently came out. I had watched season one and I thought it was like good, not great. I think I watched it, enjoyed watching it, didn't think about it again, right? Immediately left my mind. And then season two came out and I was like, oh yeah, that stalker show. I'd do another season of that. Season two, so much better. Oh, okay. Loved season two. It's hilarious. Which made me interested to pick up the book, which is a pretty much the plot of season one. I feel like the show is a pretty faithful adaptation of the book, but the book is funnier. Hmm. Uh, I just kind of like books written from the perspective of creeps. Okay. So, uh, I, I, the only one I can really think of right now is The Collector, which I've talked about before that I really like. So, this is from the perspective of a stalker who has, you know, decided that him, his, this woman that he just sees is his soulmate and they're meant to be together. And so, he's, like, conniving all of these things and manipulating oh. things to, like, you know, make make her his lady love. And the complications and all the things that happen with that. And there's something very funny to me about this being written from his perspective. Because you'll get these points where he's, like, literally spying on her through her window. And being like, what's weird is some people would think I am a creep. (laughs) But clearly, I just believe in true love. Okay. Fascinating. Yes. And uh, I haven't finished it, but I'm I'm more than halfway there. And I've very much been enjoying it. Very readable, very fun to read. Okay. Um, is yeah. it true to the show? Like, did, is, did they make changes? There's some changes. That's, I'm, I'm always interested to hear that. There are some changes. I feel like some things are moved around so it makes more sense in, like, a TV show plot structure yep. than opposed to a novel stru- plot structure. Obviously, they didn't have room for everything that's in the book and the show. Right. Even with the... I don't remember how many episodes are in a season, even with like 10 episodes. You had to lose some things. Um, the show does rely a lot on narration from okay. the creep. His name is Joe. Um, so you do get some of that same monologue that you get from the book in the show, but you get more of it in the book, obviously. Yeah. Um, I find the book, the first season of the show was like sort of funny. 
But I wasn't always sure if, like, I was supposed to like certain characters mm-hmm. or, like, what it was going for all the time. I think they did a much better job with that in season two. But in the book, it's like, oh, I, I totally get what this is going for. Yeah. So it's, like, a more successful execution. Um. Yeah, no, I really am enjoying it. It's nice. Yeah. And I'm shocked this is her first book. Because oh, it's okay. very well paced. And I feel like that is something that... Is it always the case for debuts? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, for a first book, people often have, like, a lot of ideas. They're very passionate. They've got, like, great writing. But then you're like, why is this middle section here where just, like, <laughs> nothing happens? Because they just haven't learned that the structure part or the pacing right, part. Right, right. It was, like, very well paced. It almost, like, suspicious. I was like, but how? <laughs> how did you do this? Anyway, recommend. Great recommendation. Check it out. And I, her second book... In this series, is called Hidden Bodies, and that's what season two of You is based on. So I'm excited to check that out as well. Awesome. Well, I'm also recommending a book. I'm recommending a book that was recommended to me by a friend of the pod listener, Rob, from Our Strange Skies. Oh, I asked Hi, Rob late last year in our Facebook group what your our listener's favorite book was in 2019. And Rob's answer was Into the Raging Sea by Rebecca Slade. So it's not the premise sounded interesting. So I requested it at the library and I was approved this last month. And I finished reading it last week and it was so good. Oh. So it's a nonfiction story of the sinking of a cargo ship called the El Faro. It sunk because it sailed directly into Hurricane Joaquin. Oh. Um, it's really good. So right before I read this book, I read Eric Larson's book about the sinking of the Lusitania. Oh, yeah. Eric Larson, author of The Devil in the White City. Well, I found that book interesting. I also found it kind of boring. And it's written sort of in a similar way in where it follows... Eric Larson's books are long. They're very long. Heavy on research. And this one in particular sounded felt a lot like a, a history book in a way that wasn't super entertaining, even though it was written similarly to Rachel Slade's book, where you're actually following people that were on the ship and like uh-huh. involved in the story. Um, it just lacked some... I don't know, the... Suspense Oops. element? Yeah, yeah. The Lusitania was sunk by a German U-boat, so you would think that it would have a little bit more action, and I kind of found it the whole thing to be boring. Although it was interesting. Rachel Slade's book, which I read immediately after finishing Eric Larson's book, had everything that I wanted in the other one. Um, it read like a novel, because, and I didn't know this, boats have, at least big ones, have black boxes, like planes, hmm. where mm-hmm. they record the conversations of the crew, and the black box from the El Faro was recovered, and it recorded the two days, lead, I think it was two days leading up to the sinking. Oh, wow. So, uh, Rachel Slade had access to, like, word-for-word transcripts. So, all of the quotes, she says at the beginning that all of the quotes, any quoted dialogue in the whole book was word-for-word what the people actually said love it and so you're following the crew as they're going through this and you really feel like the suspense and the dread because a lot of the crew members who didn't have the ability to speak up and change the course of the the ship because there's as you probably know a very rigid hierarchy where if the captain says something you have that's what's going to happen but a lot of the crew realized that they were in grave danger and so you really feel that suspense throughout the book and then terrible she weaves in history like all of the things that led up to this and there was quite a long history from how we started using these specific cargo ships and how regulations came about um there's elements of corporate greed there's elements of climate change because these hurricanes are getting stronger and less predictable sure yeah 
So I really liked it. It was a solid recommendation. Um, yeah, I have to say, I because would never occur to me to read a book about a ship. Never. And somehow I read two last month, but... <laughs> Very I'm strange. Never, I'm never at the bookstore going, you know what would tickle my fancy? A ship. <laughs> Same. Let's Same. learn about a ship. But I actually really, really like this one. So thanks for the recommendation, Rob. I'm passing it on, passing it on to our listeners. You're welcome, listeners. Okay. We should probably wrap this up. We need to up. wrap this up because my dogs are out of control. <laughs> okay. So... This is perhaps you. Did you know that? And you should give us five Robert Stacks on Apple Podcasts. We need those reviews for our ego and for the algorithm. Yeah. Uh, you can follow us on social media at Perhaps It's You, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also join our Facebook group. We interact with our listeners there. It's a lot of fun. Definitely check that out. We already told you to send in your paranormal story, but you really fucking should. And that's Perhaps it's you podcast at gmail.com. If you have a few extra dollars, you can send it our way on Patreon, patreon.com slash perhaps it's you. Uh, do you want to tell them again what we're doing this month for the uh, bonus episode? Oh, it's low files. The low files. We are going to be talking about the exploits of Rob Lowe and two of his children looking for Bigfoot. So and there's nothing I've ever wanted to talk about more. And guess what? That's going to cost you all of a dollar. So it's so worth a dollar. Go steal do a dollar and send it to us. So that's patreon.com slash perhaps it's you. All right, everyone. Get out there, solve some goddamn mysteries. (laughs) Goodbye. Bye.